You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We have been journeying through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Uh, 13 chapters, so 13 weeks. We're taking a chapter at a time. And we are in Nehemiah 5 today. And we're going to answer this question. How do you manage your wealth whether you're rich or you're poor. So the story in Nehemiah is that God's people are trying to assemble. They're trying to live together, love one another, take care of one another, but there are lots of obstacles and enemies. First, there's this oppressive government that doesn't seem to like the Bible. In addition, there's this economic downturn and the culture was against God's people. Any of this sound familiar yet? And there were some people who decided they would be enemies and adversaries. So it seems like everyone and everything was against God's people. Some things never change. And the government is not going to take care of God's people and help them get the Bible taught. The economy may not be favorable. Culture is certainly not in our favor. And enemies are seemingly not going to turn into allies. So it becomes increasingly important that God's people look out for, take care of, pray for, support, be generous and good toward other believers. This leads us to the context of Nehemiah 5. God's people weren't taking care of each other. So here are the first five verses. It's largely financial, as you'll see uh, as this story unfolds. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. You see, how we treat one another is really significant to our unity. Because it's not the external problems that can really hurt the church and God's people. It's the internal problems. It's how we treat one another. The pain in heaven was when Satan, who was part of the divine family, turned against God. The pain in Jesus' ministry was when Judas, one of the leadership team, turned on Jesus And this week, we're looking at the lives of God's people who are so financially intertwined, and certain believers are taking advantage of other believers. Now, before we get into the context of Nehemiah 5, I need to establish the categories because most Americans don't understand that the Bible has significant things to say about money and wealth and stewardship and finances. Over 800 scriptures 
including Nehemiah 5, including about 25% of Jesus' teaching, is all about wealth and finances. That being said, we tend to think wrongly in our culture in terms of rich and poor. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. The Bible has four categories, not just two. The big idea is this. It's the godly versus the ungodly, not just rich versus poor. So here are the four categories in Scripture. There are the godly rich God blesses them. They work hard. They tithe. They invest smart. They're generous. You're going to see as the story unfolds, that's Nehemiah. He is godly and he's rich. A second category is the godly poor. They also work hard. They're important to the ministry and and mission. It's not that God hasn't looked favorably upon them. Just circumstances are what they are. They are still good stewards. These are the poor people who are suffering in Nehemiah 5. The third category are those who are ungodly and rich. They gain and they spend wrongly, greedily, selfishly. This would include in Nehemiah 5, the overtaxing government. Can you believe that? The government overtaxes people. They're charging excessive interest. Who could imagine? And then there's a fourth category. The ungodly poor. These folks do not spend wisely. They do not tithe. They do not invest smartly and they tend not to work. Now that last category, folks, are are not really in Nehemiah 5. The battle in Nehemiah 5 is really between category 2 and category 3. It's the godly poor who are being taken advantage of by the ungodly rich. And then there's this guy named Nehemiah. He's godly and he's rich. And he comes and he helps resolve the problem. But you see, in our culture, if you're only dealing with two categories, rich and poor, the assumption and the presumption is that rich people have what they have because they've stolen it or they've oppressed or they must have done something wrong and therefore they have more. There must be some systemic injustice. So what we need is the government to come in and take from the rich who are bad and give to the poor who are good. And so God is not the highest authority. Government is. So the vision is that government needs to replace God. The government should take people with power and remove their power. Take people with wealth and remove their wealth. They should transfer wealth and power to those who have no wealth and power. That's exactly where we are in America. But you go to the Bible. It's not the rich versus the poor. It's the godly versus the ungodly. And think about this. Was Jesus rich or poor? Yes. Here's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Jesus, when he was in heaven, rich or poor? Rich. I mean, this 
guy is loaded. Jesus, he has everything, right? When he comes to earth, rich or poor? Poor. When he goes back to heaven today, oh, he's rich. He owns everything. And he's going to come again and claim it all as his own. So you can be like Jesus, whether you're rich or poor, because Jesus was both rich and poor. The problem in Nehemiah is not between the rich and the poor, it's between the godly and the ungodly. In this scenario, the believers who were supposed to be godly were acting ungodly. And the believers who were poor, they are godly, but they are being taken advantage of by those who are rich. So this leads me to the first principle. You either love money and use people, or you use your money to love people. The context of Nehemiah 5 is this. They were in the midst of a famine. They, they didn't have materials. In addition, there was an economic downturn and a crisis. And in the midst of all that, the government decided, we're going to raise taxes. Now, the people who have money, they can really get incredible interest rates on their loans. And they can get people to take risks with things like their homes and their businesses and their family farms and even their children as collateral because people are in desperate need to eat. They're in a crisis. And what happens is the ungodly rich have this strategic opportunity to maximize their profit. And they're like, you know what? We can kick up prices. We can really increase interest rates on loans and we can get people to put up as security things that they would never under normal circumstances put at risk, including their own children becoming slaves. And the sad thing is these people are supposed to be believers. And what they're doing is taking advantage of the godly poor. The godly poor are starving. They're starting to sell their own kids into slavery, and some of their children have already been taken to pay off debt. This is a terrible witness, and it makes for terrible worship. The terrible witness is, Nehemiah says that one believer is taking advantage of another believer. So everybody who's looking at this from the outside, think of all the non-believers, think of other nations it's like, this is a terrible witness. Those folks are like, well, we don't have to attack them. They're attacking each other. And it's terrible worship of God. It says in verse 1 that the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. And in verse 5, we read, some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Now imagine this. Imagine you come to church and someone else is driving your car. They now possess it. And out of that car steps your daughter. She's now their slave. And after church, they're going to go home to what used to be your house, but you didn't read the fine print, and they now own it. How hard would it be to worship with that person, right? God's people are to love and serve and care for and be generous toward everyone and anyone, but at the top of the list are other believers. Sometimes God's people overlook the godly poor to serve lots of other people, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's not first priority. 
Now, in that day, the government is not going to take care of God's people. The culture is not going to take care of God's people. The critics and enemies, we've seen two in the book already, Sanballat and Tobiah are two that stick out. They're not going to take care of God's people, which means we're down to one option. Who's going to look out for God's people? God's people. And so as things get darker, God's people need to go deeper in their relationships and in their generosity and in their care for one another. Now, a couple of practical things. First of all, you have professional relationships and you have personal relationships. So let's say you're dealing with a fellow believer. Maybe you're buying or selling goods or services. Maybe you're employing them. You're working out in business with them. And you've got two relationships. You've got your personal relationship. You know them. They're a fellow believer. And you've got the professional relationship. There's work to be done. Now, I know sometimes this can get messy. But if you're the one doing the hiring, then make sure that you pay them in a timely manner and you pay them what you agreed upon. And if you're the person who's contracted to do the work, maybe you're rebuilding someone's home or you're repairing someone's car, do your job, do a good job. Keep your integrity intact. Don't take advantage of each other. And that's what's not happening in Nehemiah 5. Those who have power and money are taking advantage of those who do not. And what they're doing is they're ruining their witness and they're ruining their worship. Well, the story continues. Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. And praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. So here's the big idea your spending reveals your soul. Jesus said it this way Your treasure shows where your heart is. Now, if you're a guy, and let's say you've got a big boat, 
and golf club membership and a side-by-side and a couple of rifles and every fishing gear imaginable. But you say, you know what? We don't have money in the budget for a date night. It tells me a lot about your marriage, that you like your hobbies more than you like your wife. People say a lot of things, but we vote with our wallets. And that's where you find your real priorities. And so spending reveals your soul. So Nehemiah sees these believers who have more than enough, and they're taking what is remaining from those who don't have anything. And here's what he says. I was very angry. Some people will say, well, you shouldn't get angry. Well, all emotions are godly or ungodly. It depends upon what you do with them. The Bible tells us that God gets angry. And what Nehemiah doesn't do, he doesn't respond in sin. Now, how many of you, when you see somebody doing something wrong, in your anger, you do something wrong back at them? Nehemiah said, you know what? I need to take a little time. We already noted that he prays nine times in the book. He's going to process everything with the Lord. Okay, Lord, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I can't just get angry and post it on Twitter or X now. Nehemiah is godly and rich. He understands law. He understands business. He understands rights. And what he says is, you guys, he's talking to the, the rich guy. He says, you like me, you're rich, and you understand how the legal system works and how the financial system works, and you know how to manipulate contracts, and what you're doing is wrong. So he's going to use his wisdom and his wealth to get and seek justice. And they have this meeting. We'll call it a church meeting. Nehemiah laid it out. He says, all right, all of you guys who have taken from all these people, what do you have to say for yourself? He says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, let me say this. What they were doing, it wasn't illegal. It was just sinful. You know, there are laws that the government has. There are laws that God has. And usually God's laws are of a higher standard than those of the government. And what he's saying is, you are not following the Lord. You know, the government isn't going to arrest you. But God is not going to bless you because you're not doing right. And what happens? The ungodly rich do two things. There's repentance and there's restitution. We were wrong. We took advantage of of people when they were down on their luck and in a vulnerable position. And then the restitution is we are going to give back everything we should not have taken in the first place. Maybe those ungodly rich are not going to be so ungodly anymore. Repentance is saying, I was wrong. Restitution is saying, I'll make it right. 
And what we see here is that when Nehemiah confronts them, the Holy Spirit convicts them and they repent. They realize they were wrong and they practice restitution to make it right. And this is significant. What he's asking them, is the Lord in your heart? Because it doesn't look like it. Are God's people on your heart? Because it doesn't look like it. So they were believers, but they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping money. And they were willing to violate all of God's principles to gain more profit. This is where we all need to consistently examine our own heart like, is the Lord my highest priority? Or is it my wealth? My security, my comfort, my hobbies, my lifestyle. Do I think that my net worth determines my self-worth? And it's a heart check that Nehemiah gives these people. And Jesus also said, this is recorded in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So when we give, they are blessed and we are blessed. You know that something's of the Lord when it's a win-win situation. You know what's of the flesh when it's a win-lose, like I win, you lose. And you know it's of the devil when it's lose-lose. This is now a win-win. The people who had lost everything, they're now going to survive. They're going to get to keep their daughters They're going to have something to eat and still have their businesses so that they can help take care of their family. They win. But the people who are giving it back, they are blessed as well. There's something tremendous in our giving because that is the heart of God. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ his son. This is the remarkable thing about Christianity. Before we give God anything, we give God our worst. Before we give God our money, before we give God any praise, we give God our sin. And God gives us his son. And the result is that God is the most blessed because he is the most generous giver. And then when we give, we share in that blessing. There's a false teaching that says we give to get a blessing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we give in order to get a blessing. The giving is the blessing. How many of you have given a present to a child, seen the look on their face, and they weren't the only one who was blessed in that moment? How many of you have helped someone that was down on their luck, and it was a blessing to them, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit brought confirmation into your soul? So Nehemiah has dealt with their finances. Now he's going to deal with his own. And what we see from Nehemiah is that he's a rich man and he's a very godly man. And what he determines is he's going to raise his standard of giving instead of his standard of living. Here are the next verses. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, 
Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver, that's about a pound. In today's worth, that's about $400. Took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. In other words, these governors were not only getting governor's food, working for the government, they were taking more and more and more from the people. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, Nehemiah says, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Remember, they're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the wall. They're putting the gates that have been burned down back up. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. So instead of getting wealthy from his position as governor, here's what Nehemiah says. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, nor did we place an even heavier burden on the people. Why not? He says, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Wouldn't it be great to have politicians in Washington whose priority was the Lord? In addition, Nehemiah is the one hosting these large, lavish dinner parties for 150 people, over 150 people, on a daily basis. So he sends his assistant out to Costco with his personal credit card for these state dinners. And every 10 days, he says, wine in abundance. Y'all are already raising your hands to go. Remember Nehemiah's job when he was in the Persian empire? He was a cupbearer to the king. This is a guy who understood fine wine. He says, every 10 days, we didn't get the box stuff. We got the good stuff. It wasn't $2 at Trader Joe's. This was the real deal. I mean, this was like Napa Valley good. He did all of this to help take care of as many of God's people as he could. And then he prays. It's the last verse of this chapter. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. What he's saying is, Lord, I'm going to take care of your people, and now I'm asking you to take care of me. Does God like to answer that prayer? 100%. If you're a parent, you take care of your kids. God wants to take care of you just like that. If you're a believer, you want to take care of God's people. God wants to take care of you. And what we are seeing here are Nehemiah's priorities. His priorities are God's kingdom and God's people. That's what matters most to him, God's kingdom and God's people. 
So Nehemiah 5, I'll close the chapter with this. There are three ways to live your life. And we see these in Nehemiah 5. The first way is to live selfish. What's mine is mine. That's the ungodly rich. They're not sharing. They're not giving anything. What's mine is mine. Closed fist. I'm, it's mine. The second way to live is stealing. What's yours is, is mine. That would be ungodly rich and the overtaxing government. Not only am I going to keep what I have, but I'm going to take what you have also. And then the third way is stewarding. What's mine is his. That's the example of Nehemiah. And a steward is this, 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received. Now, that could be uh, monetary. It could be gift of an ability to serve. Whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And a steward is one who understands this. God is the owner and I am the manager. According to the Bible, God is the owner and I am the manager. God gives me time. How am I stewarding that time? God gives me ability. How do I steward my ability? Because those gifts he's given me are not just for me. God gives me money. How do I spend the money that ultimately belongs to him? That's the mindset of a steward. Nehemiah is one of the most incredible examples of stewardship in the entire Bible. And what he does, he goes to the Lord nine times in prayer and he's asking the Lord, okay, God, these are your people. What do you want me to do for them? God, this is your church. What, you, what do you want me to do for it? God, this money is your money. How do you want me to spend it and give it and share it? God, this is a job that you've given me. How can I invest it for you? And he takes everything he has and everything he is, and he uses it as a steward to invest in God's kingdom and to invest in God's people. Now, let me close with this. You said, well, I thought you already said you were going to close. No, I just closed the chapter. <laughs> this is the bonus part. So let me close with some personal encouragement for us at Benton Heights Presbyterian. I'm really encouraged by the stewardship God's allowed us to have. And the result is this church is vital, it's healthy, it's strong. Now we have more work ahead of us as we press into the great commission more. Jesus gave the command to his followers, go and make disciples. We will want to do just that. Because there are a lot of people who don't yet know Jesus and they need to know Jesus. And they're not going to support the ministry. We give in order to minister to them so that they would come to know and meet Jesus. And here's where we currently stand with our financing, the mission and ministry of this church. As of September 30th, you have given roughly $387,000.
compared to income last year at this same time was 339000 almost $50,000 more, same time. And our expenses this year have roughly been 388000 so 387,000 of income, 388,000 of expenses. And we give over 10% of our budget to evangelism efforts and another 5% toward outward focused ministry. Things like the food pantry every Monday night and crisis ministries where we give to folks all over for uh, utility needs and rent and food. All of this is amazing. And it's a tribute to the love and generosity of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who blesses us so that we can be a blessing. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.